Roxanne Jackson is a ceramic artist and sculptor living in Brooklyn and upstate New York. Her works are Black-humored investigations of the links between transformation, myth, and pop culture. Press for her work include The New York Times, The New Yorker, The LA Times, Juxtapose, Hyperallergic, Forbes, among many others. She is the recipient of residencies at Shigaraki Ceramic Cultural Park in Japan, the Bemis Center, Socrates Sculpture Park, Wasaic Project, among, again, many others. Jackson has exhibited internationally and most recently, which we will be talking about today, Roxanne has a solo show at the whole Nature is a Horror, a Comedy and a Tragedy. Roxanne, welcome to the Art Career Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I live back and forth between Wasaic and Brooklyn. Roxanne owns a home in Wasaic. And since I came up here seven months ago, Roxanne and I have become kindred spirits. I love you. I'm so excited to be here with you in your beautiful home. Obviously, you have this absolutely amazing show up at the whole. Kathy Grayson did such a beautiful job with you. And I walked into the opening and I got teary-eyed because not only have I watched Roxanne's works grow so much over the past seven months, I was able to see them how Roxanne imagined them to be. And I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about your show. It's the equivalent to a museum show. It's stunning. Everyone needs to see the show on Bowery at the whole closes. October 23rd is the last day. So make sure you see it, Roxanne. Thank you so much. After the opening I was thinking about the show. I was thinking about the space. I was thinking about the installation, which I'll talk about a little bit. But literally, like, I forgot (laughs) this thing that I'm about to tell you, which is so weird that I forgot this. So my dad, you know, was a hobbyist and a Sunday painter, even though he painted a lot more than that, and a musician. And my stepmom, they both have passed on now. But um, they both painted and sang together. My dad played guitar, blah, blah, blah. But... They also were super into collecting things and collecting rocks and polishing rocks. And when I was very young, they would take me to a lot of rock shows, not the music kind, although I did go to a lot of those, but not with them, but like the mineral kind. Uh, Clearly. That's why I'm talking so loud because I'm like a little (laughs) bit deaf. But so I went with them to all these rock shows where there's like minerals on display and like literally forgot about that until days ago. The thing that was more on the brain when I was thinking about this install and show is um, retro mineral displays that are like at museums, like the one that used to be at the Natural History Museum in New York, where minerals are put on display and they're spotlit. I remember this vividly as a kid. 
And I mean, I feel like I remember that they're often on like steps and tiers. The background was either black velvet or like carpet. Mm -hmm. And all of that was made to kind of disappear to the shadows, which is what I wanted to do with the exhibition, like highlight the work. And even though they're ceramic objects, not minerals, in my mind, these are minerals because they're still made of the same type of ingredients as minerals because they come from the earth. Clay obviously comes from the earth. That's fired. That's metamorphic. And also glaze is basically the ingredients that make minerals. And so when I think of myself as a ceramic artist, I'm really aware of the fact and the materials that I'm working with. I feel like I am working with the earth's materials, clay and minerals to make my own shapes that are geological and that will last on planet earth for thousands of years. And so it makes sense for me to have this kind of um, mineral display for the work and also a domestic space. So there's steps inside, it's all carpeted. And the domestic space is supposed to invite viewers to like hang out and spend time with the work. Not just so collectors can think about what it's like to live with something, but more just like it's stepping back from the white cube and really creating an immersive experience. The shadows become conceptual shadows, which links to Jungian ideas of the shadow side of the self, which I think just adds another interesting component to the work. So yeah, I'm kind of thinking about all these things. Conversation pit. It's interesting because this whole concept of installation and experience, I think sometimes takes away from the actual work. And what's so interesting about this installation and this experience is that, you know, I have had an intimate relationship with your pieces over the past seven months and seen them in context alone, right? In your studio with nothing around them. And I can honestly say this is just additive, right? This is just another experience. It's almost a glimpse into Roxanne's soul, which you do not need, I believe you do not need when you acquire a work of art or you look at a work of art, right? I want to see it objectively. I don't necessarily need a narrative. I think your works intrinsically have a story to them. And I think it's very organic. It's not pushed. But my point is this is an experience and it's an additive experience. It's not taking away from the work, when you take out Medusa, when you take out select pieces, you're still having the same experience, if I'm making sense right now. Yeah, I think so. And also, I just want to talk a little bit more about the domestic space and that kind of setting. Again, there's ceramic objects, and we are really familiar as humans with ceramic objects, like one of the first art forms, if not the first art form up there with cave paintings you know, people had to carry water and put it in something. So it's either like an an animal hide or an animal intestine, or it's like a low fired, like clay pot holding water. So we have this really, really deep relationship with ceramics and to place them in a domestic setting and to have some sculptures that are or are referencing candle holders as well as vessels next to or in adjacent in the same space as like decapitated heads and other sculptures that have no real utilitarian role, Mm -hmm. then I think that creates a really interesting relationship and tension. And I think it makes sense for all the work. That's how I see it anyway. Yeah. And that brings me to our next topic, which we were discussing before you and I, 
this concept of the grotesque. And in your approach to ceramics, I think it's very clear that you question conventional notions of beauty. And I'm going to quote you. You said, I aim to invent a new mythology by creating uncanny, which is one of my favorite words, distorted and psychedelic forms. These shape-shifting sculptures evolve and unfurl, revealing gems once hidden. There are collisions of nature and fantasy, the absurd, the playful, the ironic, and the grotesque, which is what I want to speak to you about. Just the other day, we were talking about the movie- Border. Border. The Swedish film. The Swedish film, Border. It's a film about two trolls and- What struck me about this film, when Roxanne and I were talking about it, we were driving up to Will Hutnick's solo show after a very long armory week, and we were both exhausted, and Roxanne said, what did you think of Border? Because you had told Kevin and I to watch it. And I said, well, I, I loved it, but what struck me particularly was the sex scene, and that is because it was this gorgeous powerful, charged sex scene between two beings that are conventionally extremely hideous. And not human. And not human. Okay. But I think we can agree that there are many people that would watch that sex scene and be extremely uncomfortable. What struck me was the charge that I felt watching it and how it just really challenged this notion of conventional beauty, right? It highlighted the grotesque in a not cliche, tortured artist way, not a sensationalist way, but a really organic way. And it ran parallel to the effect that your work has on me because there are, again, there's nothing sensationalist about your work and it's grotesque, you know? I mean, there's gore everywhere and you look at it and it's just fucking beautiful. And so, yeah, speak a little to that notion of the grotesque within your work. Well, a quote that just came into my mind, and this is off the cuff, and it's not written in front of me, and I haven't seen this in years, so I'm paraphrasing, but I think it was by Simon Critchley. When an animal looks like a human or is embodying some kind of like human traits, we think that's cute. But when a human looks like an animal, we think that's terrifying. One of the pieces in the show, The Medusa, is clearly about Medusa, but also sci-fi horror, John Carpenter's The Thing, hello, like shout out. In The Thing, the alien in The Thing, it was a shapeshifter and the blood had consciousness. So basically that means that a drop of blood could still shapeshift in something and like basically run away. And in uh, Peter Paul Rubens painting a Medusa, which is my favorite artwork ever, in his painting, he has a depiction of Medusa where the blood is actually manifesting into snakes. So when I made that piece, I was thinking of both of those influences. And I was very aware of, or at least my theory is that John Carpenter was referencing the myth of Medusa. Because when Perseus was flying over the sand with her decapitated head, the blood, when it hit the sand, turned into snakes. So shape-shifting. And that's what my piece is also doing. And also the top of her head in my sculpture is split 
to reveal her skull. And the skull is alien. It's otherworldly. It's not snake. It's not human. So I want her to be like um, sci-fi and referencing both these things. And what I want to talk about with that and back to the paraphrased quote of when an animal looks like a human, we think it's cute. But when the opposite happens, we think it's terrifying, which goes back to you talking about border because those creatures, those trolls were somewhere in between. And that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. So I'm really interested in the idea of transformation um, in a lot of ways. The material of clay is transformative constantly, but also just this concept of something being in between Medusa or any of the characters like the centaur, um, zebra in the show, or the snake lady. They're a combination of human and animal, a combination of myth, but mixed up with other things maybe added some sci-fi. And so to me, this is really interesting territory. And in John Carpenter's thing, the shape-shifting alien could mimic a form very accurately, but in the process, it would look really, really grotesque. So like maybe it's morphing into a dog and that's great. But in between, the head might be split and the mouth might be in the wrong place and there might be teeth in where the eye is. So again, this goes back to that quote where like, we want it to be tidy, we want it to be on one side but or the other. We don't want it to be. Tidy. We don't want it to be in the middle. Yeah. And so I'm just like very interested in that idea of capturing the a moment of transformation and shape shifting in ceramics, which is a challenge because I'm making objects that are hard and they're stagnant. But I want to allude to something else. Well, you do allude to that thing, whatever that is. You told me a story once about a professor that came into your studio, and I'm paraphrasing, but said something like, there's so much ugliness in the world, can't you make something beautiful? And that really stuck with me because, I mean, you are making something beautiful, but knowing you knowing your childhood, knowing your spirit at this point, you know, I wonder when this, because it is a little bit of an obsession, right? It's like a passionate obsession with the grotesque, with what we're speaking about, with this element of, right? The only constant is change and what happens within those shape-shifting changes that we all go through. You know, when did that begin in you? I assume at a very young age, you were drawn to. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always been there because I made art for a long time. My first conscious memory was that I would be an artist. Like I said, my dad, I was around people, even though my parents separated, whatever, I was around people who were being creative and making things. And I did that always. And there was always like kind of a dark edge to my work, which I don't know where that came from, even at four years old. Of course, it evolved and skill got a little bit better. Hopefully it's nature and nurture. But also to me, it's not even necessarily about just like processing trauma. It's about beauty. Like what is beauty? Who defines that? I think my work is beautiful. I'm just going to say it. Why would I make it if I didn't think otherwise? And like you talking about that quote was a visiting artist. It wasn't one of my professors. It was when I was in grad school and a visiting artist came in. And I just want to add a little bit about here. Like I was making really intense sculptures. Like I made a sculpture of a disemboweled deer that had a human face with a, stung t a tongue sticking out of it that was bright red, bright pink, glossy intestines, resin antlers that were translucent, 
the deer was matte black covered in red vermilion powder and spice. And it was like an intense object. And I had a studio visit with a visiting artist who was a utilitarian potter who made white porcelain pots, like zero glaze, zero color. And it's interesting that we just got thrown together Mm -hmm. so as to have a meaningful conversation because we work with the same material, which is a little bit ludicrous because the subject matter is so Well, no one would ever say that about a painter. Exactly. Like, oh, you both use crimson paint. You must have so much in common. Exactly. And I think ceramicists really- I mean, this was a while ago, but she walked into my studio and looked at that piece. And the first thing out of her mouth, I'm just going to correct your quote because it became the title of my piece that at the time was untitled. So the actual quote that she said was, there's already so much pain in the world. Why not make something beautiful? And in that moment, I was like, studio visits over. A and B, thank you for teaching me something. Thank you for showing me that I'm actually talking about beauty. Yeah. Because I had no idea until she told me that. And that's the truth. And that it hit. And you. I'm like, I am talking about beauty and it looks like this. And you and you are. And back to your show right now, you walk into a space like that and you see these grotesque images and there's nothing more beautiful. I don't even think they're grotesque. They're grotesque. Somebody called I mean, my work brutal. And you're, I was like, what? Well, Roxanne, but yeah, then they are. Yeah, right? okay. You're just in yeah. it. I'm in it. Right? I'm in it. You're yeah. in it. However, they are, right? But my experience with your pieces is better than any experience I could have with a piece of ceramics that is conventionally beautiful. There's not language to talk about your pieces. But I will ask this question. This is a tough question. Do you think it's easier to explore the idea of the grotesque when you are conventionally beautiful? Well, thank you for this awkward compliment, but um, I'm not thinking about that at all. I'm not even thinking that my work is grotesque. Right. I am making work that I want to look at. But you know what I'm saying. I mean, but that's not a part of the equation. That's not what's happening. That's not the motivation. I don't think it's the motivation. I think it's inevitably part of the experience. And maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I am interested in polarities, you know, and it's like, it just happens naturally. It's like, I'm not striving to make grotesque work. It's just the aesthetic. It's what is going to happen. But I definitely want to lure people in. I definitely want seductive glazes. I definitely want to sculpt certain things with so much love that they're accurate and they are funny. And I think it's more interesting when there's these visual formal and conceptual tensions in the work. I love that. There's There are so many conceptual tensions and they're smart works too, you know? Like let's step aside from these notions of the grotesque and beautiful. You just said funny. They are funny and they're smart. I mean, I feel like I've been making funny work for kind of a long time. Well, you're and funny. Like, Roxanne, you're very funny. I mean, I I think I have a great sense of humor. I crack myself up all the time. You know, I live alone, but the humor happens naturally. But I think it's a really, really great tool to use as well because it provides some levity for another kind of conversation. Yeah. Don't just hit them with horror. And I know this from grad school. 
because that's what I did at the time, because that's where I was at at the time. And all my professors were trying to tell me, like, dude, like, what did you just make? Do you want people to, like, enjoy your work, right? But I just, like, couldn't really take it in and couldn't really understand it at the time because that's just where I was as a human being processing what I had to process in my life. And now I think it's like, there's more freedom. Oh yeah. You've processed so much that you're coming out the other end and there's space around all of that to bring that levity into the darkness. I think it's like, I think of it as being celebratory. I think the tiger head cornucopia, fuck yeah, is celebratory. I see that as beautiful. Even though it is literally a decapitated tiger head and there's a knife in the picture coming out of it. I don't see it as brutal. I see it as like still being alive. I see it as transforming. I see it as like a slap in the face. I don't know. I see it as a lot of things. Like I don't feel sorry for it. I feel like it's an empowered piece. I don't feel sorry for any of your works. Well said. They are all empowered creatures. You use the word uncanny in this quote, but it all of a sudden struck me and I've never thought this before, but I was very into surrealist literature in grad school. I mean, total misogynists, right? But uh, Andre Breton wrote Mad Love and, and Nausea and, you know, these really beautiful books and essays and for the first time, I'm kind of like making that connection because there was the beautiful and the grotesque and the poetic. And again, there's so much narrative to your works. They're almost literary. You look at your work, it's storytelling, it's narrative. There's so many layers to it. Uh, I think we're trying to simplify it in, you know, the grotesque and the beautiful, but really they're so alive and so much is going on in each one of these works. As someone extremely passionate about mental health, seeing a therapist is essential to my quality of life. We'd like to take this moment to announce how thrilled we are to partner with the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp. If you think you might be feeling anxious, depressed, or even just overwhelmed, being alone with your thoughts can be an isolating feeling. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. It's that easy. Join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And just for the Art Career podcast listeners, we will offer 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash T-A-C. That's better, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P, dot com slash T-A-C. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring the Art Career podcast. I want to briefly rewind because something I learned about you researching this podcast, even though you're one of my close friends, I didn't know you studied botany as an undergrad. I did know that you were a river guide 14 years. Yeah. Well, that's just fucking cool. But 
you and I are both naturalists, right? And then to take a deep dive into your works on an intimate level and see the effect that all of that has had is so interesting. So speak to... Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time in the wilderness, hardcore. I backpacked a lot and um, hiked intense Alaska, places. Alaska, two years. Alaska, I was a river guide. That was like the last end of my 14 years because once I knew I was going to step away from doing that as a quote-unquote career river guiding, I mostly worked in California, but I also worked a little bit in Oregon. I rode a boat down the Grand Canyon. I worked a little bit in the country of Nepal. And then I worked for, in Alaska for two years on rivers, the Tachinshini and the Alsek River, two weeks at a time. I've camped in Pennsylvania. Okay, well, that's cool. So similar, similar. You probably had saw some raccoons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had so many encounters with wild animals. I've seen everything that you can imagine and um, and probably multiple times. Not bragging, just saying that like I spend a lot of time in the wilderness on the outside and then I'm like really reflecting the wilderness on the inside. There's like an infinite well of source material for that. But when I was in Alaska, I think that had a huge impact on me because we were in really, really remote places where we had to fly out in helicopters because there were no roads. There was like nothing or maybe there was everything. I just want to tell you this, that um, in the summer in Alaska where we were, so the sun didn't, it didn't get dark in the summer at all. So we'd be on a river trip for two weeks and the sun would come down like it was going to go, like it was going to set but you would see a sunset for about two and a half hours because the sun would skip along the horizon for two and a half hours and then go back up. Meanwhile, surrounded by glaciers. Meanwhile, I saw so many grizzly bears plus other things. I literally lost count. It was The beauty was overwhelming. But one of the things that I really took away from that was that I felt really vulnerable, not just because grizzly bears were a normal thing to see, but because it was an epiphany for me in some ways where I had perceived nature as being something that I like like to experience and like to look at as an observer. But there's something about when you're around a lot of something like grizzly bears and you are part of the food chain, you understand that you actually are nature. You're not separate from nature. You are nature, which makes sense, right? Why our moods change when the seasons change. We are not merely witnessing nature. It doesn't matter where we live. If we're in Alaska, we're in New York City, we are part of nature. All of these things affect us. And so the work is basically about nature. It's just not a typical depiction of it. It's not like a viral stag bureau, whatever that word is, cast in bronze standing on the top of the mountain. It's like more about like what happens when that stag weakens or gets decapitated and turns into a cornucopia. And the whole botany thing was just like, when I first started being a river guide, I worked on like kind of easier rivers. And then I progressed, you know, to more challenging, difficult terrain, whatever. But initially I had to be more of an entertainer, like tell jokes and like talk about the plants and talk about the geology which is also important because you want people to understand the importance of biodiversity and like why we need to save it and why it counts. You know, most humans respond to like, this plant is why we have aspirin. Chew the leaves of this willow tree and it'll make your headache go away. Make it about you. Exactly. And, and then humans it. will be like, okay, that's worth some money. Yeah. So in some ways, that's why I like chose to study botany when I went to undergrad. Yeah, was but just, just to, the like, medicinal purposes of of plants is so interesting. Absolutely. I love plants. 
I love the medicinal purposes. I do know this about you. I know that you've spent a good deal of your adult life dipping your toes, experimenting with psychedelics. And I wonder how that has influenced your art practice. I do know that you don't go into an experience with the intent of it directly affecting your art practice, but we've talked about it and it inevitably is going to change you. It's going to change your practice. What is that experience for you? Well, that experience is lots of things and hard to summarize and always different. And, you know, not necessarily just my adult life. When does adult life start? 18? Okay. 40? Well, I mean, 18. 18? 18. Maybe, but Well, I mean, I'm just saying 18 is when maybe I started dabbling a little bit. I find that for me, it's been really helpful because like it's opened my mind and has exposed me to a lot of things that I just like want more. You know, I want more knowledge. I want more understanding. I want true creative insight. I want to be able to think beyond the language that I know. And I think that's really important because language can really kind of limit us. Absolutely. We know this. And so psychedelics, plant medicines taught me a lot and have only taught me, have never untaught me anything unless I needed something to be, you know, healed and taken away. But like, it's been all positive and um, healing, actually. And it's given me ideas for art, which is always hard to, how do you take something and translate it into three-dimensional form without looking totally cheesy or whatever. But Yeah, I just think it's been really beneficial for my growth as a human being. I fully respect and am in awe of these experiences you've had. I don't have them because I'm fearful of them. You know, maybe someday I won't be, but I'm so interested in the expansion of intellect, emotion, spirit, that happens because I see it with you. And it's almost as if I'm studying it through watching my friend, right? And you talking about these beautiful experiences you're having, and it's giving me a deep respect for something I might never be exposed to, but like, isn't that what we're supposed to do in life, right? Be able to like learn from other people and try to understand things that we might not necessarily be experiencing ourselves. And I wanted to ask you about this on the podcast because it's something not a lot of people talk about, more people in the art world, but I think that obviously it's an untapped resource. It's just coming into its own now. And I think people are really starting to understand the beneficial aspects of psychedelics and all forms. People understood them 40 years ago and that got shut down. There were a lot of studies. We understand the significance and it is coming back with a resurgence. And I think that it might be coming back because maybe we need it right now. (laughs) You think? Uh Yeah, Yeah, I think. We need a lot right now. Um, But anything to help raise levels of consciousness, I'm all about. Yeah, I'm all about that too. And we share an affinity and a love for nature, meditation, connection. We both spend most of our time upstate right now. What that means to us, we how both, that's healed we're us. We're both cat people. Both cat people. What more is there, right? I'm trying not to 
lean into these really cliche topics, but I'm going to speak to feminism for a second and your work. I've shared this with you, so you know this. This doesn't come as a surprise. Some of my favorite people in the world, when I first met them, I really didn't like them much. And I didn't like you at all, Roxanne. Now I know I was just like a very threatening experience. I think when two women meet and they either have a lot in common or one of them, and I think we were both in a weird spot when we met, but it was this, and I think you do this in your work, it's this ego challenge, right? Like I was like, okay, I'm feeling threatened by this person. This woman is super powerful, super beautiful. And I don't know. I just didn't like it. I was like, get I don't, I don't want to be a part of this person's world. And what is so cool is fast forward four years, you're one of the closest people. And I mean, really, right now. And I don't know why the universe has brought us together. I think we're both in a very exciting part of life and exciting part of our careers, but it's cool that I'm sitting here interviewing you on this podcast and you are someone that I was able to put ego aside and realize how much I loved you, how powerful you are, how talented you are, and how much you really, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't even think you know it, but you mentor me in so many ways, you know? Like, I'm so intrigued by everything about you. Well, likewise. And also, we talked about this before, that in our culture, women aren't, we aren't taught to necessarily- that a little bit. Like, we're not taught to, like, like each other. We're taught to compete with each other. Yeah, and I think that's what I was feeling. And compete with each other for men or husbands or whatever. Jobs, like, that's very detrimental. I'm really trying to be supportive. And that's something that, to be honest, I've had to work towards. Because I haven't always been that way. Because I didn't, haven't necessarily been around that all the time for myself. So it's something I've had to, like, learn and practice. Like, anything, you know, we have to practice to get good at. So... I have like a lot of friends now. I mean, a lot of female friends. I also have guy friends, but guy friends have always been easy for me because I grew up with so many men in my family. But um, yeah, I think it's something that I'm really trying to do is just support my friends, support other women, like be happy for other people's accomplishments. Sometimes maybe I feel jealous. And you know what? I've really, really worked on doing. Yeah, but to recognize that. Yeah, recognize it. Don't dismiss it. It's a real emotion, but I'm just like, I try to take that as a motivation to just work harder in the studio. Hell yeah. Just go to the studio. Just like, I want to turn jealousy into inspiration and and make it work harder. And And, drive. And you know what? It works. It totally works. Roxanne, there's nothing that's worked better for my career than being jealous of someone because like you- Yeah, because you turn it around. Oh, yeah. You turn it around. You don't deny the emotion. No. You feel it and you sit with it. and then it'll just like that. And it'll just dissipate. I want that and how am I going to get that? Yeah, use it as motivation. But also, like I said, I want to support my friends. I also want to support the people that I don't even know. Like I want to just offer support. 
And I even want to offer support. This is the hardest one to maybe people who I might not like that much for whatever reason. You know, we don't have to like everybody, but like, I still want to offer support because we're all in this together. And I'm, that's like something that I just feel like we could all use more of, you know, of course, look look around right now. (laughs) Yeah. All we need as women, as humans, right. It has nothing to do with just women at the end of the day. We need support. As we wrap up, advice for younger artists. Yeah, I would say this is going to sound so generic, but it's true. Like work, 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 dedication to the studio, prioritize the studio practice. And I also just want to talk a little bit about like, I know that when I was fresh out of grad school, my work was derivative. And it took me a long time to kind of get out of that, right? Because I was like inspired by so many people And the way to get out of that is to work through it and to keep practicing the studio. Because like for me, when I'm working in the studio and also the material of clay, the intuitive and malleable properties of clay works well for me um, because I work very intuitively. So one piece informs the other. So there's a constant like flow state where work is just coming and work is just flowing. And I don't like sit down and sketch and I don't I don't really need to. I just need like one little departure point to get started. It's and then, you. Yeah. And then point. let's see what happens. But so I would just say like work, work, work. For me, the studio is my absolute priority. Absolutely. I just, it's the thing. And the thing is it brings me so much happiness and it brings me so, so many rewards. And I'm not even talking about career. I'm just like, that's what I want to be doing. And I do want to quote, we talked about this show before Friday Night Lights. So I got COVID last December. My friend, um, Natalie Winlock told me to watch the show. And I was like, isn't that about football? Whatever. So I watched the show and I loved it. It's my I favorite mean, show. It's so great. I mean, artists should watch it. People, it's whatever. So it's good. like, there's so many lessons and I love the coach. And he has this quote that says, success is not the goal. It's the byproduct. Okay. I'm going to repeat myself. Success is not the goal. It's the byproduct. And that was like, it resonated with me because I had an epiphany, you know, well, I've had many, but one epiphany showed me that I was like, at one point in my life, spending too much energy focusing on things that I didn't have in my life. Well, that feels terrible. And that's not productive. And that's a negative way to manifest because we're manifesting all the time, whether we're conscious or not. So I don't want to unconsciously manifest things that I don't want in my life, which maybe I was doing. So what I learned to do was just like put all of that energy, as much energy as possible on gratitude and doing what I want to do, doing what I knew I wanted to do when I was four years old to geek out and to make little things in the studio and just give whatever piece I'm working on, whatever time it needs to become, whatever it needs to become, and just like spend the energy on the work. Anything else that comes out of that, including gallery exhibitions, collectors buying work, somebody writes about your work, it's all incidental. It's amazing and validating, but ultimately it is incidental. Ultimately, it is a byproduct of the truth, which the truth is, this is where I want to be. I feel like my love of my life is just like, it's my studio practice. And so I would just say like, just nurture it, just prioritize it, just make time for it and focus on that. Roxanne, I love you very much. And this has been such an honor, truly. 
Don't miss Nature is a Horror, a comedy and a tragedy at the whole up through October 23rd. 23rd. On Bowery. On Bowery. You're going to have many more solo exhibitions in your future. I genuinely believe you're going to be an extremely famous artist. You already are in my eyes. And I thank you for being on the Art Career Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Art Career. If you get value from this podcast, please consider helping me make more of these episodes by becoming an Art Career Premium member at theartcareer.supercast.com. That's theartcareer.supercast.com s-u-p-e-r-c-a-s-t dot com. And please don't forget to rate and review. Every rating counts. Thanks so much.